I'm Casey Bell from the Google Teacher Podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, welcome back. Steve here, and today I'm talking with Mickey Boaz. She is the mother of two sons who have dyslexia. She had to fight a four-year-long legal battle to try to get help for her sons, and she is the author of One in Five, How We Are Fighting for Our Dyslexic Kids in a System That Is Failing Them. Lots to learn today. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to share and subscribe. Enjoy. You are listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast for educators, helping you help kids achieve their dreams. And now here's Steve with this week's show. Mickey Boas is a marketing consultant and entrepreneur who has worked with a range of iconic brands, including Nike, Samsung, the ACLU, the United Nations, and Fusion, to find bold, provocative solutions for broken systems. When Boas's older son was diagnosed with dyslexia, it took her four years of legal battles that drained her savings, battered her self-esteem, and pulled her family apart to find an education that fit his needs. As a result, she created Invisible Red Tape, a thought leadership forum and online advising platform designed to expose the inequalities in education for children with dyslexia and crowdsource an insider's guide to practical solutions. So she just produced a book called One in Five, How We Are Fighting for Our Dyslexic Kids in a System That Is Failing Them. Just a little bit about it. One, one mom determined to get the best education for his dyslexic son offers practical tips and advice for other parents navigating the public school system. Both a rallying cry and an invaluable resource, One in Five details the national education crisis as it impacts the one in five children who have dyslexia. Mick, Mickey Boaz, mother of two dyslexic sons, wrote this book because because too many parents feel isolated and defeated in their efforts to secure an equal chance for their children. Mickey, thanks for talking with us today. Say hi to everyone. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Well, I appreciate you being here. And uh, you just published your book called One in Five, How Are We Fighting for Our Dyslexic Kids in a System That Is Failing Them? But why should anyone who's listening keep listening and want to get a copy of your book? Well, 20% of the population has dyslexia. So if you uh, fall into that audience or you educate people who fall into that audience, I think you should definitely buy the book. Um, I feel that it has invaluable resources on things that professionals won't tell you in order to try to um, solve some of the issues that face our children with dyslexia. Excellent. The, you know, let's talk about something you noted in the preface. And by the way, yours is one of the books that I have a hard time getting through the preface. You know, it's funny as a, as a kid, I used to, you know, you have to read books and stuff for like for class and uh, you know, it's like, okay, is the teacher going to ask questions about this? No, I'll move on. <laughs> I've, I've learned to put those behind me and read the preface thoroughly. And, uh, and I'm glad I did with yours also. And, and something that you noted in the preface is you said this. Now I wish I'd paid more attention and had known what these signs meant. But like all parents, I simply wanted my son to have a happy, uncomplicated childhood. Can you tell us what they're what you're referring to? Yes. So um, dyslexia for your audience is a neurobiological condition and it's genetic and it affects reading and different ways of taking in information. However, the intelligence level is, is normal or above average. And so what I meant in there was that my husband is dyslexic and he saw the signs of um, crawling late, talking late, 
missing miles, developmental milestones is a common characteristic that we see in children with dyslexia. And so um, I didn't want to admit that he was behind developmentally because I knew that meant that he had a harder road ahead. And it, quite honestly, it meant that I had a harder road ahead and um, kind of staying in the state of denial was a lot easier. And our society allows you to stay in that denial. Your pediatricians tell you that you're within range. Your teachers tell you that you're within range. And so you can stay within range all you want. Um, but I wish I would have known, as you mentioned earlier, because um, as the brain develops, you have such a, a finite window of time to kind of get in there and fix some of those issues that um, if I wasn't in denial, I could have addressed earlier. And that's, you know, and it is interesting what you're talking about, because that is something that our society is kind of set up that way. People worried about being sued mm -hmm. um, for any number of reasons that they think. So therefore, they tell you the good news and uh, or what they think is better news or at least uh, undercut what they probably should be telling you. And uh, and then along with that, then, you know, it's just like I'm a I'm a father. I have I have two sons. They're they're now uh, in their 20s and such, but they're. Uh, you know, I remember those days when in the beginning and all that sort of stuff and everything is, well, forget in the beginning, even now when they're in the ages that they are, you want everything to go well for them. And, uh, and it, it, bad news is not something you want to want to really be hearing. So in, anyway, so, you know, one of the things and, and what you just described, I think lends itself to going a little deeper into this question, which is, um, can you talk a little bit about why early intervention is so important? Yeah. So Early intervention can fall into two buckets, just so that your audience understands. There's, there's um, early intervention that the government provides, which are services um, before the age of three. And the idea is that you can get in there and provide therapies and different forms of um, support before uh, the child reaches education, because all of the research shows that if you can get it in that time period, it works. However, only night. 90% of people don't know that it exists because we live in a society that's scared to tell, talk to people about developmental milestones and you're within range. And um, I just found that that was um, a scary number. As I mentioned in the book, I didn't know that um, early in, those early intervention services existed, except for the fact that my mom's a speech therapist and she let us know and gave us all the code words so that we could um, be qualify for early intervention. So that's very important because you're able to address the issues um, as the brain is growing. The other form of early intervention that most people talk about when it comes to dyslexia is um, identifying, screening, and diagnosing um, as early as possible because um, th these are my words, not doctor's words, but if you can teach someone how to read the right way the first time, you spend less time remediating it and teaching them the right way later. That's the choice that we made for our son. So we put him in a private school that was focused on language-based learning difficulties at second grade. Most people in his school come in in fifth grade, right? And so um, there's a big discrepancy there. But the reason that early intervention is so important is that um, if you get at-risk readers um, in the early, when they become at-risk, you can they can be reading at grade level um, with frequent support um, up to 52 to nine, between 56 and 92%. So if you get it early and you give them the support they need, they can get on, on, on grade level with their peers. But the problem with dyslexia is you can accurately diagnose it at five. However, 40% um, of children are diagnosed with it at 10, three years later than proficient 
readers at seven. Wow. And that, and that is definitely uh, impactful there because uh, the, the amount of growth that happens to them in, in just a school setting alone um, in those number of years right there um, would definitely be impacted. So could, let's talk a little bit about, uh, you know, now, now you mentioned this when you started talking in the beginning a little bit about what dyslexic, uh, uh, what dyslexic is. What, can you just talk a little bit more about that? Just say a little bit more before we move on. Dyslexia yes. is. Yeah, it's an unexpected difficulty in an individual who, in reading, for an individual who has a high intelligence level to read at a much higher level. So it, it, it has to do with how your brain processes information. And there is a system called multisensory um, learning that helps your brain take in the information in different ways through touch, through writing, through sound, through visuals, right? And um, the dyslexic brain is able to process those better than um, neurotypical learners. Gotcha. So, so now I want to I want to kind of shift gears here because I think you know one of the things that I hear you, you talking about explains this quite a bit, but I want to get specifically into it. Is could you talk just a little bit about why parents, I think, obviously need to learn to become advocates for their child? Yeah. So. Everything to me starts with the federal laws that were <laughs> made 45 years ago that are supposed to protect individuals, um, the IDEA, Individuals Disabilities Education Act, excuse yes. me. And um, the laws are not looking out for us, and um, it's up to us to kind of come in and fill in the gaps. While I think educators and the laws have good intention, um, two-thirds of children with um, learning disabilities are not diagnosed or given the help that they need. And so that really, dyslexia in particular, is, is what I consider an invisible disability. And um, it's not seen, and children develop coping mechanism. Um, some parents think that signs of going to school is just being an, an um, ornery teenager, but it's a, it's, a, it's a clear sign that there's a struggle. And, and um, after fourth grade, almost 85% of the curriculum you need to access through reading. So um, if you see your parent, if you see your child struggling, really get in there and um, see what you can do to get them screened, identified, and diagnosed. The, uh, you know, I want to pull from your book again. Uh, mm -hmm. In this section, it goes like this. And so these are your words. All I wanted to do was cry, sob, and scream at the unfairness. If an educated woman with a big mouth, I'm sorry, I didn't laugh there, but <laughs> if an educated woman with a big mouth and time on her hands couldn't win, who could? I swear I aged at least five years in those 18 months. Why do you think that you had to fight the school system to get support for your child? Again, it all starts with the federal laws that get passed down to the state and local. So any of your listeners who are in that state and local range, I feel for you, but there's just not enough resources to serve 20% of your classroom. Um, you need teacher training. You need money for more reading specialists. In my youngest son's school, there's 600 kids and there's one re reading specialist. So how are you, I was crying and sobbing because I, I deserve, my children have the same rights as any children to an equal education. That is what the law provides. And I tried everything humanly possible for lawyers, for school formats. It took me four years. And I still have to send my son to school privately and pay privately for my child. That is not, that is not what 20% of Americans should have to do. I felt, I felt, um, I felt left out of the education system. And I, understandably so. I mean, I, that's a lot of, uh, I can only imagine the number of people you talked with 
over those four years and and just starting with the school itself. I mean, it, how did it kind of manifest itself in the beginning? Did it just kind of like some just people trying to placate you or just trying to not even acknowledge you? <laughs> well, I like to talk about special education sometimes as a don't ask, don't tell situation, especially for children who don't have visible disabilities, right? So why do you want to screen? Because if you actually screen, you're going to have 20% of your school that you don't have the resources to serve, right? Um, and then let's say they're screened and you put them in front of a special education teacher who's being asked to serve 13 different categories of disabilities in one class. My child needs to learn with a phonics-based multi-sensory system and the teacher in his class only had 30 hours of training. I asked for more. It wasn't in the professional development budget. I asked, I, I offered to substitute teach so that she could go get um, you know, more training. No, it was, they, they drew the line in the sand of what they were going to do. And if they allowed me to get the support I needed to have for my child, imagine what the rest of the school was going to do. So I felt like I was made an example of, um, and I, I had it take it to court and I, I didn't even, I didn't win then. So, wow. yeah. You know, and that's, that speaks to, you know, one of the things that I would hope, uh, the audience hears loud and clear that, that are educators is, is being able to, to understand what the family dynamics and what's happening and what it is that they're the role that they could play and should play as opposed to doing battle in a court system. Cause I can't imagine that the only, I can, I can imagine the only winners there are really the lawyers. So. Oh, that, that is definitely correct. Hmm. I mean, and, and, and the, the teachers were good about getting him evaluated it became the administrator's problem on how to take the little resources they had in their hands and give them to 20% of the kids that needed them in the school. So, you know, it, I want to get into uh, something that we have in um, it, this next section is really pretty amazing what you've put in here. It's in section three, it's called the highlights reel. And you say this, by the way, it was difficult for me because I, I, I we, you know, we have a time frame in which we got to ask. And so there are questions that didn't make the cut, <laughs> but uh, I'm trying to sneak a couple of them in through yeah, side can, questions any, here. Anytime, no in section three, the highlights reel, you say this, as I began searching for answer during Matthias's journey, I, I didn't realize how common these struggles were for so many parents. Talk about what, what, if you could talk about what you found out and share a little bit about what is in the section of one in five. Yes. So, um, it wasn't until many years into my journey did I find, did I start talking to people about the outrage. I was like still in post-traumatic stress disorder. It was just something that I, I didn't readily and easily talk about. But I had a question one day about something specific related to dyslexia and people mentioned to check out Facebook groups. So I was on Decoding Dyslexia. There's an amazing uh, group called dyslexia support for dyslexic children with parents, something like that, that 50,000 members. And I learned more in those groups than I ever learned from a speech therapist, a lawyer, or anyone in between. And so I didn't realize to your point how rampant this national education crisis was until I found these pure, huge numbers and amazing women um, that went before me who were able to share their, their details. And so that's kind of what formed the thought for this book, that this is not a Jersey City problem. This is not a Mickey problem. This is a national problem. And I felt the only way to create change was to go around the country. And I interviewed over 200 women to show that 
by telling these stories with emotion and impact, we're really able to create the change that we need. And so that's what I call the outrageous highlight reel, because um, I feel like we live in a headline culture as we stream through our phones. And the, some of the headlines that you will hear would just break your heart. And what's, what's interesting too, is they have their advice that, you know, mm -hmm. each time they, you, you relay their words and their thoughts and ideas, um, then, then they give advice. And uh, do you have any, anybody that's kind of like one of your favorites out of that group? Oh, I have so many. It's like I have 19 children that I've featured in this book and I can't choose a favorite, right? Um, I think maybe for your listeners, um, there was a woman in Nebraska who was actually a special education teacher and she was told that multisensory learning was um, Pinterest boards and, and um, smelly markers. Nice. So that was an unfortunate situation in, in Nebraska. Um, in uh, Minnesota, uh, a woman was told that if she brought in a reading teacher, this was a really interesting and innovative solution for your readers, your listeners out there, which is um, a, a, a school isn't allowed to bring in a reading, a private reading tutor or a private support because they're, it's a liability under the building laws or something like that. And so this mom um, had to pay to rent the library out and split the cost of the reading tutor with the five other people in the group and bring the tutor in. And the principal told her that if she had to bring in reading tutors for her daughter, then um, he had to allow gymnastic tutors for those who are not good at gymnastics. So we are comparing sports to literacy. I mean, and she, she found a way around it. She was able to bring in a virtual tutor and, wow. and, and in a world that we're living in now, that doesn't seem so strange. So yeah, those are just a few highlights of um, some of the outrageous obstacles that we uncovered. Wow. And it's a powerful section and it's, you know, and there's so many of them and I know it's, it's hard to ask you to choose one because obviously <laughs> they made the cut into the book. So, uh, because there are so many more and, you know, and these, are some of your favorites, but I, I, I can't imagine telling somebody, um, oh yeah, by the way, uh, for your, I'm going to compare the, uh, this literacy, the situation, the special situation, learning situation with, uh, um, learning a sport. So yeah, interesting. Um, yeah, that would have been, that'd make you rip your hair out. Yeah. So, there's so many. I can go on if you want me to tell you more. <laughs> go ahead, why don't you go ahead and give us, give us another one. Yeah. Um, uh, let's see another one. Um, bilingual, bilingual schools, like um, a woman had adopted a child from um, Guatemala and she was told that she couldn't get the support that she needed for her child because there was a delay because of language. And in reality, that's not the case. So they kept denying and denying and denying because of language. Um, another child who had autism um, was also not given the support for dyslexia because you receive more money for autism and they kept writing the same reading goals in. He, clear, he, he tested for dyslexia, but they wanted to keep him in the autism bucket. And so she couldn't get reading support for her child because of an autism diagnosis, which again, um, as you know, children are multidimensional and require so many different types of supports. And that's what the IEPs are supposed to do under the IDEA. And there's just not enough resources to go around. And so, um, those are some of the unfortunate situations that we saw. It's just some of it's so crazy. I <laughs> yeah. just don't understand. The, uh, it, so 
let's uh, you know, could you share a little about the the need for teacher training? Because we you mentioned it a couple of times here, you know, and specifically teacher training and understanding dyslexia and children at different ages. Yeah. So. Um, I think the most important thing for your audience to understand is there's a third grade threshold, right? If you are not reading by third grade, there's, you have a four times higher rate of dropping out, four times higher. Um, as you know, our reading rates um, of fourth grade are 65% of fourth grade and above only read a 65% proficient, or sorry, let me do that again. Stop. <laughs> um, <laughs> So, okay, I talked about the third grade reading threshold. Okay, um, so if you're not reading by third grade, you're not able to access the curriculum. So self-esteem starts to drop, you do stop going to school and you eventually drop out. And 85% of juvenile offenders cannot read. So about the time frame and about what teachers can do, um, Children with learning disabilities need to learn in a very, um, in a phonics-based system. And so one of the favorite um, research that I accessed for this book was Emily Hanford, who is a senior correspondent for American Public Media. And she's reported on um, dyslexia and what children need to learn to read. And what she uncovered is that there's, there's a battle between the phonics-based system and balanced literacy. And so for teachers, it only four out of 10 pre-service teacher training programs teach phonics in the country right now. So let's say that I've battled, right, all the way up to finally get someone to acknowledge my child's dyslexia. And then I'm I have a pretty good chance I'm going to be put in a room with a teacher that doesn't know how to teach phonics. And phonics is so important because I think 90% of, of the English language is phonics based, short sounds. So you have to understand how to decode. And there's great systems out there for children with dyslexia that um, teachers can access through professional develops or going to a pre-service teacher training program that teaches the science of reading. Some of them include Orton Gillingham, Wilson, Barton, all of these are systems that, um, that help children thrive. And when this is put in place, Mississippi is, um, was able to re, um, increase their national reading scores, only person in the country because almost 15 years ago, their governor, who was dyslexic, realized that there was a problem from the top down when it came to teacher training. So he realized that teachers were pushing their children through the grades without screening them. So he started to put in place screeners where you could not pass to the third grade unless you were reading at a certain level. Because once you cross that threshold, you can't come back, right? And so then he started making sure that every single college in the state of Mississippi taught the, the phonics-based phonics science of reading. And once that happened, their reading scores went up. Um, so just think about it from the teacher's perspective. Um, if, if you have a choice in professional development, please choose a, a Orton-Gillingham, Wilson-based, multi-sensory, phonics-based system. I can't, I'm not an educator. I try to speak it every once in a while. But um, <laughs> But the importance makes all the difference in the world for the 20% of this population. And I want to make sure that I, I say this real quick because we just mentioned a whole bunch of names that mm -hmm. th 
they don't sponsor me. Okay. <laughs> so for the audience listening, there's no, this is not a paid for infomercial or something like that. So you're discovering that these are the programs that help teachers learn how to, how to address uh, um, the, the needs of your, your children and other people's children who uh, yeah. struggle Any these Any program works, then pick and choose your own. Excellent. The, uh, you know, it, um, you have a very interesting section called, and I, I love the name of this. And for many different reasons, you kind of hit, I mean, you know, for my audience, I got to tell you guys, when you, when you read, when you read Mickey's book, one of the things you're going to see is that, um, you know, it's, there's, there's a lot of information here that you need to kind of, that you need to take to heart and uh, figure out where, uh, you know, where you are in, in this spectrum. And this section is called the trickle down effect. What happens when a deadbeat dad can't pay? And, uh, now, hopefully there's no deadbeat dad otherwhere in your, in the history here, but it, it, the imagery works very well. Let's talk about this. Yes. So the deadbeat dad that I refer to is the federal government. Um, the federal government, hey, we're, I'm, I wrote a book to create controversy and to wake people up to the fact that my child and one in five children don't have the resources. And it starts from the top. In 1975, uh, it, it was passed, there was a law passed that said it costs twice as much to educate my children as it does neurotypical children, right? So just that number alone. And the government agreed to pay for 40% of that difference. That seems like a very fair way to um, cover up the differential from the federal government. But yet, the federal government has never even paid the highest they've ever come to the trickle down effect is 15%. So who is left holding the bag when it comes to the finances needed to educate my children? State and local governments. So, and keep in mind, federal money comes in a bucket that includes special education, English, English language learners, and um, free and reduced lunch. So here comes in this federal money and now how do I track where it's being spent? Um, in some of the conversations I had, um, I live in Jersey City and we are $155 million underfunded, right? Wow. So how in any way are they gonna be able to take on the needs that are more expensive for my child? And as a taxpayer in this district, it, it blows my mind that um, the federal government started this problem, and it's unfortunate that New Jersey and Jersey City specifically are being asked to fill in those gaps, and it's near impossible. And that is why they don't screen, because if they screened, they'd have more people at their door, and they have $155 million underfunded. Yeah, that, that imagery right there just it paints the right picture. I mean, you chose the right one because it's, you know, it's actually, and in the recording of this just not too long ago, we were making some serious uh, budget cuts <laughs> um, mm -hmm. that continuously happen in public education over many, 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 many years. Like you said, starting back there in the 70s, you know, there's been many opportunities for the deadbeat dad picture. So to be and, developed. And, and if I can get in one more information on what you can do about that, because I don't want to just be someone who throws out um, buzzy headlines and, and walks away. But um, as I suggest in the solutions section, we are about to embark 
on an election season. And without bringing politics into this, we need to tell our stories to our Congress people, to our senators, because those are the people that can affect fully funding IDEA. And so um, when they see numbers, they're too hard to ignore, but when they can see someone in their district that is struggling with this problem and they can understand it and you have to see that person in the grocery store and on the street, that's when change happens. And so I really encourage all of you, um, teachers, parents, to, to go and talk to your elected officials because it's, it's time for change in November. The, uh, that's, you know, it's, it is interesting because they're, they're the ones who, when you talk, when you paint the imagery of a deadbeat dad, it's actually, there's a lot of people that were elected into office. And, uh, and that's what you're referring to. And it's in all, oh, so many different parties. So yeah. it's, uh, so it's uh, um, a good point. You know, so toward the end of the book, you say this. Before long, I felt like Bill Murray in Groundhog Day. As Oliver's school struggles intensified, we began seeing a side of him we'd never seen before. Instead of our happy, talkative, singing charmer, we had a son who dreaded school. And this is your second son, your younger son, mm-hmm. right? And uh, could you explain what you're, you're referring to here? Yeah, so just for context for the audience, I have two sons, one is 11 and one is eight. And the older son has much more severe um, signs of dyslexia and we spent all of our time and attention on him, let alone we didn't realize that if you have one child with dyslexia, you have a 40% chance of your second child um, having dyslexia, which was the case with us. So we kind of took our eye off of the ball. He has a great memory. He has a great vocabulary and we didn't see any signs of struggle. So this is a cautionary tale. And, um, I couldn't believe that after feeling this post-traumatic stress from the fight with my, um, first child, I was actually writing this book as we began to uncover the issues with my second child. So I felt like I was living in this loop of, oh no, here we go again. And we had a much different struggle with my younger son's um, school where they refused to do the screening and the evaluation. In Matias's school, they were able to do that. So I just felt like, oh my goodness, I'm coming in at this battle again in a different place and, and beating up on myself for not realizing it or noticing it. And I, I, I just couldn't believe that I had to do this all again. I can only imagine. It's like, you know, just a it's like, really? We're going to gonna go through it again. All right. I was like, what else can you dump on me, people? <laughs> right. Oh, my gosh. You know, um, one of the things I want to make sure we do before, because we're getting close to, close, uh, to finishing up. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, Mickey, before we go, if someone wanted to find out more or connect with you, where would you send them? Yes, um, I would send them to the thought leadership site that we built called the Invisible Red Tape. So invisibleredtape.com. You can also, if you're looking to purchase the book, you can go to bitly.com slash one in five book. Um, and it's available nationwide at any online retailer. You can just type in one in five and my name, Mickey Boas. Excellent. And I'll make sure that's in my show notes because uh, I put everything there. And that way uh, people listening can go back to those and find the links there as well. So, you know, okay. so I got a last couple of questions here and uh, it works like this. Um, if you had a chance to present at a nationwide conference where your audience was all principals, <laughs> and uh, in the past, I've been in one of those audiences, several of those audiences, and uh, what is something that you would uh, want them to remember from your talk? I think that's the best question I've been asked so far on this cool. book tour, so thank you so much for that. Um, I would tell them, like, I don't know how you do it. 
I admire principals for taking on that leadership role for managing the finances and for protecting our children every day. Um, I would say to them, be proactive, not reactive. The cost of educating and training six teachers is the same cost as one lawsuit. So if you really want to have the benefit and of your staff and everyone involved in educating the one in five children who learn differently, please invest in teacher training in the science of reading and get them in a phonics-based program so that you're not asking a special education teacher who is, is responsible for educating 13 different disabilities to also need to learn how to teach the five kids in their class who have dyslexia. So please invest in professional development. It will pay off in the end. Excellent. Excellent advice. That's, uh, you know, and it's something that, um, you know, maybe you get yourself invited there. So uh, <laughs> anytime, invite me. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, um, last question, when things get difficult or there are too many issues all coming at once and you want to quit, how do you overcome those feelings and keep going? Well, I mean, you look at your kids. I had the greatest summer reading project I could have ever had. My son was able to read my book to me. I mean, nice. if I need more motivation than that, I don't know what there is. That's awesome. I <laughs> love it. The, uh, yeah, Mickey, thank you so much for talking with us about your family experiences, your successes and struggles, and your book, One in Five, How We Are Fighting for Our Dyslexic Kids in a System That Is Failing Them. Thank you for taking on the battle to inform and to assist others in helping your, their children and to help educators who work with those children. You know, I'm wishing the best in all you do. Take care now. Thank you. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. The opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions for classroom teachers and school administrators. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll share it with your friends.